Welcome to Grace Point Church Podcast. We proclaim Christ crucified and uphold him as the only hope for the fallen world. Hi everyone, my name is Peter Moturi and I'm going to help us look at this book, Christ's Call to Discipleship by James Montgomery Boyce, which is the book that we're going to be looking at during our GGs. Now, the book has four key parts. The first one is the meaning of discipleship. The second, the path of discipleship. The third, the cost of discipleship. And then the fourth, the rewards of discipleship. Under these four key parts, we have 14 chapters that we're going to be looking at. And I'm going to begin with the first chapter, which is the call to discipleship. And for our convenience, I'm going to look at this and uh, sort of divide it into two. Uh, So the first portion, we'll look at uh, the introduction of it, uh, and then we'll see a subtopic, costly grace, and that command, follow me. Then in the second part, we're going to look at the elements of discipleship, and then there's that call that whoever will come. So let's begin with that first part, with the introduction. Now here, uh, James begins with quoting uh, three key portions, all of which have this command to follow him, to follow Jesus. This is Matthew 9, verse 9. There is Mark 1, verse 17. This is John 21, verse 22. This is how he begins the book. He says, There is a fatal defect in the life of Christ's church in the 20th century, a lack of true discipleship. Discipleship means forsaking everything to follow Christ. But for many of today's supposed Christians, perhaps the majority, it is the case that while there is much talk about Christ and even much furious activity, there is actually very little following of Christ himself. And that means in some circles, there is very little genuine Christianity. Many who fervently call him Lord, Lord are not Christians, as we see in Matthew 7, 21. We should not be surprised by this because Jesus himself said that this would be the case. But we should be distressed by it. In Jesus' great sermon on the Mount of Olives, uttered shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus compared professing, into bracket, but not converted Christians to women waiting for a bridegroom to appear for a wedding banquet. They were unprepared for his coming and were therefore shut out of the wedding. They were not saved. Again, Jesus compared professing Christians to a man who was given a talent to invest, but who failed to use it and was condemned by his master on the day of reckoning. Jesus said that he was thrown into the darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth, as you see in Matthew 25, verse 30. In that comparison, he described these people as failing to feed the hungry, to give drinks to those thirsting, to receive strangers, to clothe the naked, to care for the sick, and visit those who are imprisoned. These people call Jesus Lord. They consider themselves to be genuinely converted persons, but they were not Christians and so perished. We need to see there is a true in our churches. We need to see where this is true in our churches. We need to ask what it means to be a Christian, and whether those shortcomings are descriptions of ourselves. So we start with our first subtitle, that is, costly grace. 
Now, there are several reasons that the situation I have described is common in today's church. The first is a defective theology that has crept over us like a deadening fog. This theology separates faith from discipleship and grace from obedience. It teaches that Jesus can be received as one's Savior without being received as one's Lord. This is a common defect in times of prosperity. In days of hardship, particularly persecution, those who are in the process of becoming Christians count the cost of discipleship carefully before taking up the cross of the Nazarene. Preachers do not beguile them with false promises of an easy life or redundant of sins. But in good times, prosperous times, the cost does not seem so high and people take the name of Christ without undergoing the radical transformation of life that true conversion implies. In these times, preachers often delude them with an easy life, Christianity without the cross, in order to increase the number on their church rolls, whether or not the added people are regenerate. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German churchman of the Nazi era, who eventually suffered martyrdom for his opposition to Hitler's policy, called this erroneous theology cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. The contrast to this cheap grace is costly grace. Now, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the power of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it causes to follow and it is grace because it causes to follow Jesus Christ. Another writer, an American, bemoaned the same situation. This is Chicago pastor and devotional author A.W. Tozer. He declared that the doctrine of justification by faith, which is a true and abrasive relief from sterile legalism and unvarying self-effort, has in our time fallen into evil company and has been interpreted by many in such a manner as actually to bar men from the knowledge of God. The whole transaction of religious conversion has been made mechanical and spiritless. Faith may now be exercised without a jar to the moral life and without embarrassment to the Adamic ego. Christ may be received without creating any special love for him in the soul of the receiver. The man is saved, but he is not hungry or thirsty after God. In fact, he is specifically taught to be satisfied and encouraged to be content with the literal. 
It is not only false theology that has encouraged this fatal lack of discipleship. The error is also due to the absence of what the older devotional writers called a self-examined life. Most Westerners live in a tragically mindless environment. Life is too fast, and our contact with other persons too impersonal for any real thought or reflection. Even in the church, we are far more often encouraged to join this committee, to back this project, or serve on this board than we are actually counseled to examine our relationship to God and His Son Jesus Christ. So long as we are performing for the church, few question whether our profession is genuine or spurious. But someone should suggest that members of a church may not actually be saved or they, although they are members. Teachers should stress that a personal, self-denying, costly, and persistent, persistent following of Christ is necessary if a person is to be acknowledged by Jesus at the final day. In the absence of this teaching, millions drift on, assuming that because they have made verbal acknowledgement of Christ some 10, 20, or even 30 years ago, and have done nothing terribly bad since, that they are Christians, when actually they may be far from Christ, devoid of grace, and in danger of perishing forever. So here comes the command, follow me, on the second subtopic, follow me. Now in this book, I want to examine what the Lord Jesus himself said about discipleship. Study will range over a number of sayings that taken together show the meaning, the path, the cost, and the rewards of this essential pursuit. But I say at the onset that the arguments of each of the following chapters are essentially just one thesis, namely that discipleship is not supposed second step in Christianity as if first one becomes a believer in Jesus and then if he chooses a disciple. No, from the beginning, discipleship is involved in what it means to be a Christian. So I begin at square one. And the start of this area of Christian doctrine is Christ's command, follow me. Now there are many texts in which Jesus explains in greater detail and with other images what it means to be his disciple. But the command to follow him is the first and the most basic explanation. We find it a number in, in a number of stories, chiefly in the calling of the first disciples. In Matthew 4, 18-22, with its parallels in Mark 1, 14-20, and Luke 5, 1-11, we are told that Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee when he saw two brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew. Jesus said, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. He went a bit farther and saw two more brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee. He called them in a similar manner, and they too left their boat and followed him. Now, several chapters later, in Matthew 9, 9 to 13, and the parallels in Mark 2, 13 to 17, and Luke 5, 27 to 32, there is an account of the call of Matthew, also named Levi. Matthew was a tax collector. He was despised by the people for his collaboration with the Roman authorities, but he obeyed Christ and followed him. 
When the people protested Jesus' association with a sinner, Jesus replied. He said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This explanation shows that the command to follow Jesus was not understood by him to be only a mere physical following or even an invitation to just learn more about him and then see if one wanted to be a permanent disciple or not. Now, Jesus understood it as a turning from sin to salvation. It was a call to healing by God. The Gospel of John does things differently from the Synoptic Gospels, but the call to follow Christ is no less prominent there. Indeed, there is a sense in which it provides a framework for the Gospel. In chapter 1, there is a long narrative in which John the Baptist bears witness of Jesus as the Son of God and the Lamb of God. As a result, two of his disciples begin to follow Jesus physically. When Jesus sees them, he issues the invitation, Come, as you see in verse 39. And a synonym for that is follow. Following Jesus is the theme of this chapter. Then at the end of the gospel, Jesus tells Peter, whom he has just recommissioned to service, Follow me, in John 21, verse 19. When Peter shifts attention away from his own calling to ask about the beloved disciple, that is John, Jesus replies, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me, as we see in verse 22. Coming then at the end of the gospel, these words are a testament to all would-be Christians. The discipleship means following Jesus in a personal and generally costly way. In all, the words follow me occur 13 times in the gospel. But in addition, there are scores of references in which one person or another is said to have followed Christ. Clearly, it is a very basic concept. That's the end of the first part. We are looking at Christ's call to discipleship. So we are in that first chapter. We just looked at the first uh, part, which is page 11 to 16. And now we are in the second part of that first chapter, that is page 17 to 22. And the subtopic for this is elements of discipleship. Now, in the course of this book, each of the following elements will be considered in greater detail. But it is worth stressing here just how much is involved in the words, follow me. The first one is obedience. Now, obedience is an unpopular concept today that we betray by our frequent use of the phrase blind obedience, meaning mindless adherence to authority. We think of it as an enemy, as enemy soldiers blindly carrying out the inhumane orders of an evil commander. So when we come to a phrase like follow me, we naturally think of it as an invitation and conform our evangelism to that pattern. We invite people to follow Jesus, promising that he will receive them and make them happy. Well, there may be an element of invitation in Christ's cause to sinners, but the words follow me are in the imperative mood and are therefore a command, which is why those commanded to follow Jesus did in fact immediately leave their nets, their boats, their counting tables, or whatever else was occupying them, 
and followed Jesus. On his lips, the command, follow me, was no more resistible than the command to Lazarus to come out in John 11:43. It was the equivalent of what theologians term God's effective call. That is another way of saying that without obedience, there is no real Christianity. It is not that people cannot follow Jesus in a lesser sense and then fall away when the demands of genuine discipleship become clear to them. Many persons in the Gospels seem to have done this. Uh, the rich young ruler is an example. But that is not the same as a sheep of Christ's uh, flock hearing his call and responding to his voice as he recognizes Jesus as his Lord and Master. Those who are genuinely Christ's sheep obey his call from the beginning and enter into a life characterized by obedience. The second element is repentance. Now, when Jesus called Matthew, he called one who was a recognized sinner. So he emphasized repentance. I have not come to call the righteous, he says, but sinners to repentance, as we see in Luke 5.32. But the need for repentance is no less evident in the course of the other disciples. For example, in both Matthew and Mark, the account of the calling, calling of the first disciples is immediately preceded by a record of Christ's first preaching, focusing on the words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. We see this in Matthew 4.17 and Mark 1.14. In Luke's account, the equivalent story is embedded in Jesus' first miraculous intervention in the disciples' fishing, where they caught so many fish the net was breaking. That story records Peter's profound experience of Christ's holiness and of his own sin that led him to cry out, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man, as you see in Luke 5, 8. The point is that it is impossible to follow Christ without repentance. How could it be otherwise? Jesus is the holy, sinless Son of God. He has never taken one step in any sinful direction. He has never led the way into a single sinful thought. So anyone who is following him, not some imaginary Jesus, must by definition have turned his back upon sin and set his face towards righteousness. Christians do sin, yes. When they do, they must confess it and turn from it, being restored to fellowship again. But anyone who thinks he can follow Christ without renouncing sin is dreadfully confused. And anyone who claims to be following Christ but actually continuing in unrighteousness is deluded and he or she is not a Christian. So the third element is submission. We've seen obedience and repentance. We turn now to submission. In one of Jesus' most important sayings about discipleship, which we will study more carefully in the next chapter, the Lord pictures discipleship as putting on a yoke. This suggests a number of things, but chiefly it suggests submission to Christ for his assigned work. It is a picture of an animal yoke to others as well as to a plow. A yoke is also the connection between submission and subjection. Submit comes from the two Latin words sub, which meaning under, and mito or mitere, meaning to put or place. So submission means putting oneself under the authority of another. Subject also comes from two Latin words. In this case, 
sub meaning under and yakato or yakatale meaning curse or throw it means being put under the authority of another in other words although the first word has an active sense that is i put myself under another's authority and the second word has a passive sense that is i am placed under that authority the idea is nevertheless essentially the same moreover it is connected with yoke in this way in ancient times it was customary for a ruler when he had conquered a new people or territory to place a staff across two upright poles perhaps four feet of the ground and required the captured people to pass under it by this act they passed under his yoke or submitted to his authority when jesus used his uh, this image he was saying that to follow him was to submit to him it was to receive him as lord to one's life so we look now at the fourth element so we've seen um, at the beginning one obedience repentance submission and now we look at commitment now the fourth element in following christ is commitment for the simple reason that it is impossible to follow christ without being committed to him a lack of commitment means deviating from his path uh, or falling falling away from him on the other hand it is impossible to be committed to christ without following him for a failure to follow really means being committed to some other thing or other person now surprisingly this has become a hotly contested contested issue today on the grounds that teaching commitment to Christ is to add something else to faith which of course is a false gospel this is the view for example of Charles C Riley a former dean of doctoral studies and professor of systematic theology at Dallas Theological Seminary is what Charles Riley says he writes that the message of faith only and the message of faith plus commitment of life cannot both be the gospel therefore one of them is a false gospel and comes under the curse of perverting the gospel or preaching another gospel according Galatians 1:6-9 those who hold to this position do not deny that commitment is a good thing in and of itself or that it is necessary for growth in the christian life but they do deny that commitment stands at the beginning in the sense that one cannot really be saved without it they would even take issue with the lordship of christ are expressed as willingness to commit one's life absolutely to him the implication being that it is possible to believe on jesus as one savior from sin without willingness to follow him three arguments are advanced in support of the above line of thought the first one is that scripture contains examples of believers who are not completely committed to jesus and yet were saved so like peter resisted christ's authority in Acts 10:14 Abanamas disagreed with Paul over whether they should take John Mark along with them on a second missionary journey as you see in Acts 15:39 certain believers also at Ephesus apparently refused to give up their magic charms and books for as long as 2 years after they had become Christians see that in Acts 19 also they quote Lot was saved and was declared a righteous man by God even when he was living in Sodom as you see in 2 Peter 2 7 to 8 the issue however is not whether believers sin obviously they do it is whether they can come to christ in faith while at the same time denying 
or resisting his lordship over them. It is that which is impossible. A second argument is the meaning of the word Lord. It is reasoned that in reference to Jesus, Lord means God Jesus or Jehovah Jesus. Since Lord means Jehovah, all other meanings here are excluded according to this view. Particularly, they say it does not mean master. But Lord does mean master. That is why a word that was originally used on the human level to denote one who is sovereign over slaves is used of God. Jehovah is called Lord because he is master. He is the sovereign master. Hence the curious of which all other curio are but shadows. Who is God if not master? If God is not sovereign, he is not God. No other God than the sovereign God is presented to us in the Bible. A third argument is, that, is the one suggested earlier, namely that to insist on the Lordship of Christ in salvation is to require something other than the work of Christ. That it is to add works of faith, which is, as all true Christians confess, a false gospel. Dr. Riley seems to have this in mind as he concludes, If you are ever tempted to add something to the uncomplicated grace of God, first try making it crystal clear who is the object of faith and what is its content. Then point men to him, the Lord Jesus, the God-man Savior, who offers eternal forgiveness to all who believe. Yet that is precisely the point on which all true believers insist. We do not wish to add anything to Christ's finished work. It is for that very reason that we direct believers to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is the Lord Christ. This Lord is the object of faith and its content. There is no other. Consequently, if faith is directed to one who is not Lord, it is directed to one who is a false Christ of the imagination. Such a one is not the Savior, and he will save no one. Moreover, there is the meaning of faith itself. Is faith minus commitment a true biblical faith? We remember that the Apostle James goes as far as to insist in a passage that some have erroneously thought contradicts the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith, that a faith without works is dead, as we see in James 2, 17, 26. Such a faith is useless, as we see in verse 20. It was worth nothing, as we see in verse 16. It is a claim to faith only in verse 14, not a genuine faith which comes of God and expresses itself in works that please him. But if that is true, if faith without works is dead, how much truer, truer is that faith without commitment is also dead? True faith involves these elements, knowledge upon which it is based, heart response which results from the new birth, and commitment without which faith is no different from the ascent of the demons who believe and shudder, as we see in James 2.19. No one is saved by a dead faith, but a living faith is faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, for the Lord is the Savior, and the Savior is the Lord. One, therefore, must be appreciative of the concern Dr. Riley and those who think like him have to preserve the purity of the gospel. We agree wholeheartedly that any addition to the perfect work of Christ by sinful men and women perverts the gospel and is destructive to Christianity. If works enter into salvation in any way, those who entrust in them are not saved by Jesus and are lost. All true Christians agree in that. 
But any attempt to divorce Christ as Savior from Christ as Lord also perverts the gospel. For anyone who believes in a Savior who is not Lord is not believing in the true Christ and therefore is not regenerate. Look at the third and the last element. This is perseverance. Now the final important element in following Christ is perseverance. This is because following is not an isolated act done once and never to be repeated. It is a lifetime commitment that is not fully fulfilled here until the final barrier is closed. The crown received and it and all other rewards raid gratefully at the feet of Jesus. Is salvation something that takes place in the past, something that is taking place now, or something that is to take place at the Lord's return? The answer is that all three are salvation, and that isolating any of them is a error fatal to preservation of the gospel. Salvation took place in the past. So it is right to say that Jesus saved us by his own death on the cross. His death redeemed his people. His blood made atonement for their sins. But this is not the only way the Bible speaks of salvation. It also speaks of present of a present element of our being saved, as we see in 1 Corinthians 1.18. Moreover, it looks forward to a time when by the continuing grace of God, we will be saved utterly. With that blessed end in view, it admonishes us to persevere in our commitment. It admonishes us to persevere in our commitment. Jesus said, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved, as we see in Matthew 10, verse 22. Peter spoke of growth in godliness and concluded, Therefore, brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the internal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see that in 2 Peter 1, 10 to 11. Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. We see that in Philippians 2, 12b to 13. All this is to say that discipleship is not simply a door to be entered, but a path to be followed, and that the disciple proves the validity, the validity of his discipleship by following that path to the very end. David wrote about it in Psalms 119. The section that begins that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path ends that my heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. You see that in verse 105, 112. That is, it. that is it. The true disciple follows Jesus to the very end. The true disciple follows Jesus to the end of everything. Our last subtitle here, whoever will may come. Whoever will may come. In the last years of uh, the 17th century, a French aristocrat wrote a book on discipleship that became a classic in the field. At one time, uh, the book was publicly banned in France. Yet, it has been received by millions who have judged it one of the most helpful books ever written. It was uh, loved by Fenelon, uh, by Count Zizendorf, uh, by John Wesley, and even Hudson Taylor. The aristocrat was Madame Jeanne Guyan. Her book bears the title, Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ, 
and a bit of a difficult French title there. Now, as she wrote this classic, Madame Guyan had a high standard of discipleship in view. But at the same time, she was aware that the call to follow Christ was not some circumscribed invitation to be delivered only to a special body of believers or, or to all believers only as a second step in their religious experience. On the contrary, it is the essence of faith and the invitation to come to Christ as a disciple is for all. She wrote, uh, quoting her words, If you are thirsty, come to the living waters. Do not waste your precious time digging wells that have no water in them. If you are starving and can find nothing to satisfy your hunger, then come, come and you'll be filled. You who are poor, come. You who are afflicted, come. You who are weighed down with your load of wretchedness and your load of pain, come. You will be comforted. You who are sick and need a physician, come. Don't hesitate because you have diseases. Come to your Lord and show him all your diseases and they will be healed. Come. That is the invitation that Christ's call to discipleship holds for every person. To be a Christian is no light matter. It is a call to a transformed life and to perseverance through whatever troubles may arise. It may be the hardest thing anyone can do, yet anyone can do it with Christ supplying the necessary strength. In the end, it is the only thing that really matters. Will you then take that path? The master is going before you. He is looking back at you with the most compelling grace. He is saying, come. He is commanding, follow me. That is the end of that first chapter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Brisbane Church Podcast. For more information and past episodes, visit our website, grisbonechurch.org.